Hey everybody, Michael Martin. Happy Monday. Hope you're doing well and you had a good restful and reflective and inner voice kind of weekend. You're kicking butt, ready to kick some ass this week. So I got a good question about, you know, what are some of the differences between, say, investment advisors, you know, versus, you know, traders, portfolio managers, right? And so that, that's an answer that requires some context, right? Because I don't think there's one definition. A person trading his or hers or their own account is, a, is effectively their own prop trader, right? And they are working for 100% of the profits. Somehow they have to pay their bills along the way, but that's their mindset. The investment advisor business really comes out of stock brokerage. You know, back through the 80s and probably at least through the early to mid-90s, Brokerage was still a great way for financial advisor types to make money. People hadn't made that full-on switch to fee-for-service kind of business. And that was, in fact, some of the commission brokers who were buying and selling stocks and futures and options and stuff for clients would almost look down upon the fee-for-service people who were getting paid quarterly on management fees through the firm because they were delegating the alpha creation to somebody else, whereas the stock pickers were making their own trades. So there was a, cult, there was a cultural difference. Um, that doesn't really exist anymore because the fee-for-service rackets become so prevalent. Uh, in my mind's eye, you really can't tell one firm from the other, to be frank, um, but that's really up for you to figure out or for your clients to figure out who they want to have a relationship with. Anyway, the fee-for-service game is one where you either allocate to third-party managers who have been vetted by your firm, and they probably handle a certain quality of money. That could be large-cap value, small-cap growth. You can figure it out. Fixed income, if there is such a thing. Um, Yield-based uh, investments. And that manager would get a fee for doing what they do, they wouldn't have to do any of the marketing because a big brokerage firm like a Merrill Lynch type would actually go out and do the marketing, get the relationship. The third-party asset manager would just sit there waiting for waiting to get fed. Then the fees would come in, and the then the advisor would split it with the house, and they'd get a, they'd get paid, you know, pre-tax, pre-deduction, and then they would earn their money accordingly. Those fees are typically charged quarterly, and they can be very very large. Um, Obviously, asset allocation is a huge part of that, and that's really what the, the first punch is. That's the jab, if you will, is we talk about asset allocation, and then we have the managers, right, that are going to outperform for those slices of the pie. They also say things that are quite ridiculous, like, you know, you can't time the market, you have to buy and hold. If they, You know you're in trouble if they start to invoke Warren Buffett. Um, who is a growth investor now by virtue of the fact that one-third of his assets in Berkshire Hathaway are Apple, but that's for another discussion. Um, so then you have to, you're basically, you come down to charm. Investment advisors are going to get their clients the same way a certain movie star or television star would sign out with a certain agency. A lot of it comes down to rapport because the asset the investment advisement game comes down to those nuances. Like, do you think you can work with this person for 10 or 20 years, you know, based on their competency and what they're saying?
um, I think it's awfully hard to differentiate between when you really look at what the person is getting. I think it's very difficult if you take the human being out of it, what they're getting from a science and math standpoint. They look awfully the same from one firm to another. But again, that's for the client, the owner of the money to differentiate between solutions. Now, the portfolio manager can be paid salary, can be paid a percentage of the fees. It really depends on the firm. If it's a big mutual fund company, um, it's very different than you know somebody, again, managing client assets allocated across you know, many different asset classes in a method, in a methodology of diversification. You can be very, very clever to find the segments of the economy that are moving and that are trending and then asset allocate in a, you know, in a diversified way using ETNs, ETFs, or maybe some stand-ins in the equity market for that sector, you know, best in class kind of a deal, strongest horse in the barn and go that way so that you know, you have your diversification, but you're not sitting there doing the Robin Hooding thing. The Robin Hooding thing is where you do the quarterly rebalancing and you trim the hedges of the asset classes that worked and you reallocate that evenly to maintain a fixed amount of exposure to that asset class. Why do I say Robin Hooding? Because you're taking from the ones that are winning and you're allocating to the reallocating to perhaps asset classes that had depreciated. Now, a trend follower would never do that. Why would you add losers add to losers, right? You would never do that. In fact, what you would do is you'd puke out the asset class that wasn't working. Now, to an asset allocator, investment advisor, that might go, you know, when you look at the compliance in those firms, they kind of actually believe, it's like the Johnny Cochran thing. If it doesn't fit, you must acquit. You know, the, the glove not fitting the OJ's hand had nothing to do with guilt or, or innocence. But it sounded good and you said it so much that, you know, you heard per people walking down the street in New York City saying, dude, the glove didn't fit. He didn't do it. You know what I'm saying? So, I mean, you can get stupid if you repeat these monikers, right? Because there is really no such thing as, you know, market timing, if you will, in a bit of a non sequitur here. Market timing doesn't exist, although you can do it. But we know it as market pricing because we don't buy the market on Tuesday 10 minutes before the close as a market timing thing, right? Because it, it gives you the sense that there's a day or a time of the day when you have to take action. And market timers all base their actions on price, right? So it's really more of a market pricing thing. So it's a misnomer. Anyway, I'm digressing here. So anyway, an asset allocator, you know, that's the way they talk people to staying involved in getting their fees, paid quarter after quarter by saying things like you can't time the market. That probably means they're underperforming or they have asset classes that are losing money. And so they need the proverbial handholding and that's what you get paid to do. Now that's not what a trader portfolio manager would do, right? They can sidestep all of that jabberwocky, right? Straight out of Lewis Carroll, Carroll uh, by cutting their losers and not even having them on the statement. So you don't have to have those conversations with the clients because we don't have losers there. And if they do lose money, they hit the predetermined protective stop and you puke them out. So I think a lot of it comes down to context, but also the mindset, which is the other half of the pie. Get a large cheese pie, half sausage, half cheese. So this is the sausage part. The sausage part says, 
every dollar that I don't lose is a dollar that I don't have to make up and gain. So I don't get to sit back and say, well, I'm asset allocated and I'm protected largely from losses because when one asset class zigs, the other, another one may zag. That's true, and I believe in that. And I've always said that traders have to be diversified too. I absolutely believe that. However, the whole rebalancing thing is just a way to keep all the money allocated so that you can charge the highest fee possible. You can't charge a management fee on cash, not a high percentage of cash anyway, you see? So when you do the quarterly rebalancing thing, it makes a lot of sense, but it's a very different mindset than, than somebody who's trying to protect your capital from a risk management standpoint. Remember, diversification is risk reduction. It's not risk management. Portfolio manager would say, I'll give anyone a chance for one-fourth of 1% one or 25 basis points. You make a little allocation, it either works or it doesn't. It's true in a lot of lives. A lot of prop traders have a three-month leash. They have three months to make money. They might get paid a draw against production. If they don't do it, no hard feelings. You had 90 days. But there's got to be something somewhere that fits your criteria around the world to make that happen. And if you can't do it, then you can't do it, right? You don't need to sit there for three years to figure out you're not cut out for it. So they, they let the people go. So the mindset of the trader portfolio manager is, is that I don't trust anybody or anything. I was having this conversation with a guy who I, not only do I like a lot, I really respect his, his acumen and his opinion on things. One of the few um, in that, you know, a prop trader portfolio manager is one who looks at the client money as if it's their own money. And they say, I'm not willing to stay in this thing. I don't care if it's the bluest of all blue chip names. If it's going down, it's losing me money. And I can't afford to lose money because then I need to put, it also, figuratively speaking, puts pressure on the other names in my portfolio to have to hustle. The, one of the earliest parts of my book shows, you know, money allocated, 100% of the money allocated across five different names. And we talked about what happens when one zigs and one zags. And if you had just, you know, put in some basic stop loss protection on the portfolio, the portfolio manager would have ended up being 3% in the short run. And you couldn't even really determine whether the person was good or lucky, other than the fact that they had very strict rules on protecting the capital. So I think there's a sense of ownership for those types of managers that's very different from the investment advisor world. The investment advisor world says, well, we have time, time's on our side. And if we keep saying that to ourselves, you start to believe it. My take is there's not enough time for all the things that you might want to do on planet Earth, right? So again, it's about perspective. It's about mindset. And a, a manager who's going to protect that capital is the person who's going to jump on the grenade and say, look, when I smell, sm when I smell smoke, I presume it's a five-alarm fire. Now, I might be wrong, but look what happened with Zoom. I don't suspect that we're going to go back to normal and whatever people think are going to be normal will be very, very different from what normal was a year ago. And I think the work from home thing is going to be something that a lot of companies are going to consider because they had this massive overhead in commercial leases that they don't need anymore if everybody was at least as productive by working remotely, even if they had to employ some type of sharing messaging platform like a Slack, which was recently purchased, or a Microsoft Teams or, or whatever. Um, so that'll be interesting. I don't think Zoom's, Zoom is completely over as a trade. Nonetheless, they reported big numbers, and it still sold off. 
Someone who's an asset allocator might say, hey, it's still Zoom. It's a leader in the space. We have XYZ allocation and our other names like Qualcomm or what have you unrelated to that sector, but they're moving up. Disney, mind you, with the theme parks being closed, is trading at historic highs. So again, you win some, you lose some. The losers aren't going to really hurt us because we're not trying to time the market again. There comes that that little save saving phrase that people use when they're unwilling to admit that they're wrong or we'll wait for the fundamentals, right? That's another harbinger of bad things to happen is we're going to wait for the fundamentals to change. Most of the time, the CFA types, they don't get paid to be adventurous. They get paid to kind of stay in their lane. So they can't go too far afoul out of their own firm's compliance. And I'm not even talking about the safe harbor stuff and the risks associated with forward-looking statements and what have you. They they can't put their firm brand at risk by coming out and saying, for example, Tesla is going to be a $3 trillion company, right? Because that would bring too much negative attention, even though it's possible, right? Why is that? Well, when I stand on the street corner, I see lots of, you know, combustion engines going by, even hybrid ones. But I see very few, comparatively as a percentage, I see very few electric vehicles, so you start to think about it, this valuation, what happens to the valuation of the overall company in 20 years when we might see a complete flip where, who knows, 40 to 70% of the, of the vehicles might be electric. Who's going to be there? I'm not making a prediction that it could be Tesla, but part of me believes that that's going to be a $3 trillion company. And you say, well, it's very expensive, the valuation. So what are you saying then, that it's going to stay at whatever it is, $600 billion for the next 20 years? It has no more room for growth? Because then you're back to talking about Microsoft, where you avoided it because it was trading at 40 times earnings. That was a very expensive mistake because you were looking at the wrong metrics or you couldn't envision the world being different than it is today. So that's another attribute of a trader is that they have an imagination and they're willing to risk 25 basis points to put that opinion to work without having to worry about what the chief investment officer is going to come and say if XYZ research or brokerage investment banking firm comes out and says that they feel that you could make more money if you just bought Bitcoin, uh, actual Bitcoins and Tesla and held it for the next 20 years than you would if you had their model portfolio, right? So there's politics involved. Portfolio manager trader doesn't give a rat's backside about politics and all that kind of crap. As you can imagine, they have their own thoughts and they're willing to put those thoughts to work and they get paid on those thoughts. They only get paid on if they win. So the client money becomes their money. And every dollar that they don't lose is another dollar that they don't have to win in another area. Because they come from the mindset that, look, in the short run, I'm lucky. I have good timing. Maybe I'm good. I'm not going to know the difference. Yes, over 20 years, you know you're good. But in the short run, you don't. And a lot of these places are getting like a, a, a management fee that is not unlike a draw, where the incentive fees are really what they're working for, and they allow the client to earn back the management fees. So in the end, it looks as if they are paying nothing other than incentive fees. right? So there's a lot of ways. I can't get into it now because I've gone long, way over what I normally do in terms of the length um, of these episodes, but that should give you some insight as to what you're built for, right? Because some people are built for one thing, some are built for the other. And again, I'm not making a moral argument as to which role is, is better. 
It's not about morality. It's about how a person is built and what they're willing to do to make the money, what the clients think they're in for, and what they're willing to pay for. And you know that consumer demand is defined as the price that a person is willing to pay for a good or a service, right? It's not for anyone else to determine and say, you ought to do this, or you can only charge that much. No, that's up to you. You can be empowered to do it if you want to. But make sure you have the right mindset. Because if you're going to go the incentive fee route, then you absolutely have to own the money and feel the pain of losing every dollar as if it's your own money, right? And the sooner and the less you lose when your winners do work out, again, because of good luck, good timing, or skill, you'll be that profitable that much more sooner because you'll have fewer losses to have to earn back when the, when the good news hits the tape. Anyway, I hope that answers your question and... Uh, you know, shed some light on it. There's probably a lot more to say. There's not definitive, but I think it, 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 it speaks about the industry and about the person and, and where those two things get married up in order for it to work. Anyway, uh, thanks for being here. If you'd like a copy of the audiobook version of the Inner Voice Trading, go get it at Martin Chronicle. It's for free. Happy Monday. I'll see you tomorrow.